Quiet on set. Picture is up. All right, roll sound. Rolling. Roll cameras. Cams rolling. And three, two. Hey, everybody. What's going on? And welcome to Hank's Think Tank. This is our second one in the same week. It's kind of weird, but hey, it happens every once in a while. Got Mark Hogan on my left. Howdy, everybody. How's it going, Mark? Going good. How's it going with you? Pretty good. You know, I wanted to thank Mark Hogan. I'd never really get a chance to do that, but this guy drives all the way from Katy. And not only does he drive all the way from Katy, but he does a damn good job being a co-host. He's faithful to Studio 1-3. He does what he can help. He gets guests on here all the time. And I almost like this guy a lot. <laughs> oh, shucks, man. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, I've got an interesting guest in today. Um, his name is Craig McMichael. He's got a great story. I don't want to let it out right now. I'm going to let it unfold as things go on. But uh, I think you're going to like it. But before we get started, I wanted to mention that we, Studio 1-3, meaning Mark Hogan and myself, in conjunction with the Porter Fire Department, are hosting a hurricane preparedness class. Now, guys, I know a lot of you already think you got this thing down. You've been, you know, working on hurricane preparedness probably your whole life. But, you know, there's, there's new ideas, there's new technologies, and there's new stuff that comes out all the time. And this is what this particular class is about. Uh, th they've got their information from FEMA. They've got some stuff that's packaged together, I believe, a PowerPoint presentation, a bunch of other stuff. We're going to do this thing on the 28th of June, which is just in a couple of weeks. It's on a Tuesday evening. We're going to start at 6.30 p.m. and let it ride out until it's done. If we fill that class up, we'll do another class and we'll let you guys know. But uh, give us a call or reach us on Facebook and uh, you can reserve a spot for yourself, family members, dogs, cats, if you want to bring them. That's cool with me. I don't care. We're going to have refreshments. It's going to be a good thing. And I think this will be good for anybody that attends. Um, normally, when I think I'm not going to learn something in situations like this, I always pick up some valuable information. Well, there you go. Craig, welcome aboard, man. Good to have you. Good to be here. So Thank thanks you. for coming in and, and taking the time to speak with us today. I know you've got a really important story, and this is something that's been unfolding for a while. So I wanted to kind of go back to the discussion we had a few minutes ago about how it all got started with you and let's talk about your military service and how you ended up basically at the spot you are today okay so i grew up here in montgomery county uh off rayford road i graduated from Oak Ridge high school okay. um, upon graduation i wasn't sure what i wanted to do with life but i wanted to see something get out and explore the world uh, I bumped into a Marine Corps recruiter. He offered me that opportunity. And so I joined the United States Marine Corps in 1995, uh, spent four years in Hawaii. Uh, from there, I transferred to California and I volunteered for a Marine Expeditionary Unit to get on the Navy ships and travel the world. And we had left August 19th of 2001 out of San Diego aboard the USS Peleliu. Uh, I was in Darwin, Australia on September 11th when the attacks happened, working in the communication center on the ship. So I got the classified messages. Uh, gave them down to the commanders and um, next thing I knew in November we formed Task Force 58 with General Mattis and went ashore into Afghanistan uh, set up Ford Base Rhino took over the Kandahar Airport and then I went back to California attached to the 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit went out in the USS Tarawa uh, ended up in Basra Iraq I got attached to a British unit 
my job was to drive across town every day to pick up people from the airport, which was interesting to draw, drive a non-armored Humvee through a city of a million people, worrying about IEDs and people shooting you. Um, when I got back from that tour, they sent me back over uh, for my third and final tour, which was an Al-Assad Air Base, uh, again with a 13th Mew. And my service ran up while my unit was still there. So I detached from the unit and came home and tried to find normalcy in life and start off, came back to Houston. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you, sir. Yeah, that's, that's you know, that did send you all over the world pretty much, didn't it? Yeah. You know, I, uh, I did a humanitarian mission in East Timor when I was there. Uh, I was, got to see the pyramids in Egypt, spent time in Bahrain, Kuwait, um, UAE, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Germany. Um, I was in South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong. Uh, so I, I, Guam, I got to, I got to go see a lot of different things. Who's got the best food? You know, I'm, I'm impartial to Italian food personally. Yeah. Um, I love going to Italy. Uh, it's one of my favorite vacation spots. Um, they invented ice cream, you know, <laughs> they invented they gelato. Really? Yeah, they did. Bullshit. No, that's ice true. cream was invented right here. No, sir. Right here in Texas, mm. nope. as a matter of fact. Nope, wrong again. <laughs> did, did they really invent ice cream? They invented ice cream, yes, they did. Well, I know this Bluebell invented cookies and cream ice cream. Oh, yeah. That's so that, a fact. See? That's hard to beat. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking is that Bluebell's the one who came up with ice cream. No, no. They eat all they can to sell the risk, but they didn't invent it. Yeah. Wow. You know, I knew a pimp, and that was his motto. Oh, really? <laughs> Can we continue with the show, please? Good Lord. <laughs> so anyway, so, and all your travels brought you back home. So a couple of years goes by and you meet your wife. That's correct. So how did you meet your wife? Uh, you know, I was involved in politics for a while. Okay. And um, I do IT for a living. Uh, currently, I do a lot of network security. Okay. Uh, and I'd signed up for an online dating app and I met my wife through that and we communicated for a few weeks um, and then went on a date and have pretty much been inseparable ever since that day back in December of 2015. Right. That's and where is it, where was she from? My wife was from the Ukraine and mm-hmm. I, that's kind of what brought me here today because uh, this war that has started in February has turned my family upside down. Sure. Uh, and then being a combat veteran and experience in war, um, I... I really feel for the people that I talk to that are still in Ukraine, uh, living in basements, suffering through this war, wondering where they're going to eat next. Um, is their house going to survive? And so it's been a big issue around my household. Oh, I'm sure it has. Uh, sure. So when you met your wife, she was already in the United States, though, right? That's correct. She was a citizen already. Uh, she had moved here um, probably about 10 years before I met her, maybe eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, she brought her daughter, who came when she was nine and didn't speak any English, and went to school uh, in Willis and graduated. I have since adopted her daughter. Uh, she's 25 now, uh, got a degree from University of Houston. She used my um, Hazelwood Act for my veteran status to go to college for free with no student loans. Very proud of her. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah. And has a job at a big law firm. It's a worldwide firm, uh, but she works in the Houston office for them. Uh, in their, I think it's kind of like HR department uh, hiring and stuff. Okay. Well, that's cool. And so um, you had had told me earlier that you had traveled to Ukraine a few times before the war started, right? That's correct. So before I married my wife, I wanted to meet her parents, um, talk to them, kind of see her culture. Mm -hmm. I was a student of history. It's it's one of the things I went to college for was to study history. Um, And I didn't know much about Russia other than all the 
Sylvester Stallone movies. You know, Russia's bad. And oh, yeah. So I went to Ukraine with my wife. The first time we went was in December of 2016. Uh, I believe we spent about two weeks there. Fabulous trip. We were there for Christmas. Now, their Christmas is different than ours because they're on the Orthodox uh, religion. Um, mm-hmm. So when's Christmas for them? I knew you'd ask me. I, I believe it's January 9th. Um, okay, so it's not too far away. <clears throat> no, it's pretty close yeah. to the same day. Yeah, okay. It might be January 6th. Okay. Probably the 7th. My wife's probably laughing at me right now. Yeah, probably uh, so. <laughs> but it, it was an interesting experience. So I went with an open mind. Um, I got to meet a lot of people. And what I found fascinating about that first trip to Ukraine was how welcoming the people were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when I say that, what I mean is... The experiences I had there, I imagined, are what people experienced in the U.S. in the 50s. Um, they don't sit around and watch a lot of TV. Um, when they sit down and have dinner, it's a two- or three-hour experience. Mm-hmm. Um, they put the food on the table. They sit and have dinner. They talk and tell stories. They will yeah. sing songs sometimes. Um, they do lots of toast to each other. Um, very warm, friendly, and welcoming people. And I made a lot of good acquaintances and friends while I was there. Of course, my wife grew up there, so she has a lot of friends. Um, it was interesting for me because the first time I went, and I've traveled a lot of places, you know, like I've been to Lebanon a few times. Mm-hmm. First, I went in 2010, and the last time I went was um, 2019. <clears throat> Watching countries improve over the years with their infrastructure, that's what I saw with Ukraine. The first time I went, you know, the roads were kind of downgraded a little bit from what we would be used to. Uh, the buildings, you saw a lot of the old Soviet structures still there. There weren't a lot of outside restaurants you know restaurants were just ukrainian Mm -hmm. food when i returned to ukraine in 2020 um you know you would see sushi places pizza joints um italian food uh, no mexican restaurants that i saw Uh, (laughs) i thought about opening a mexican restaurant in ukraine they'd probably love it so in the space of four years you saw quite a a a bit of growth going yes yeah and, and that's really what's sad about this war when you think about it is the devastation to the infrastructure of this country is going to take years to repair. Right. And they were doing such a good job at building the country up. Uh, we spent a week in Odessa. It's um, a city on the southern coast. Um, it really reminded me of a lot of the European cities I've been to. You know, the nice cobblestone streets, mm-hmm. the beautiful architecture. Um, we had a wonderful house there. We spent days at the beach. Uh, you now, the water was freezing, um, but it, it was just a wonderful experience um, to be in Ukraine and spend time with those people. And what city or town was she my from? wife's from the town of Mykolaiv uh, you probably hear it a lot in the news it's the one in the southern coast between Odessa and the Russians right now mm-hmm. so in the early stages of the war the Russians caught the Ukrainians off guard um, they came across the border from Crimea there was actually a Ukrainian unit training on the border there and they retreated to Kherson and they expected to put up a resistance there but the Russians overwhelmed them so they <clears throat> fell back to the next city which is Mykolaiv mm-hmm. um, and in the course of the first week of the war, the Russians were actually on the outskirts of Mykolaiv. They had taken over the airport, and they attempted to bypass the city to get across the big river there. Um, they wanted to get to Odessa, but the resistance in Mykolaiv just proved too much, um, and so they have held that city. Uh, it receives bombing constantly um, during the day, during the night, and it's indiscriminate uh, cluster bombs, yeah. um, phosphorus munitions. Uh, they bomb civilian areas. Wow, phosphorus, huh? that's terrible. Um, yeah, I think the days of making excuses for Russia and uh, errant bombing, whoops, we didn't mean to do that, are long gone because it's, uh, it's become obvious that they are targeting anybody and everybody. I, I agree with that. They, they have 
no discretion. They just bomb. It's a terror war. Yeah. Um, and to see a country like Russia committing um, genocide and terroristic crimes on a people, um, I mean, I don't know what we can do. My wife always says, well, you know, the international community should arrest Putin. That's a good thought, but who's going to go to Russia and arrest him? Um, but there should be some sort of trial. Uh, people should help be held accountable for what's going on in yeah, this country. I just right only, now. only hope that somebody is held accountable for all this. Yeah, me, me too. And that's that's the problem. And, and they really go after terror tactics. So Mikolaev spent 23 days without water. Um, now, they're fortunate because they have a large river oh, on that's their... tough. Yeah. They have a large river on their west side with one bridge across. And so as long as they can control that, they can get supplies in. <clears> so they were bringing water into the people. Um, they went a few days without any heat. And you got to remember when this war started in February, there were nights where it was 10 degrees. Yeah. Um, it was pretty cold. Um, Do you know what the population is there? Just Mikolaev's around 500,000 people. Really? Yes, sir. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty large city. It, it would be the largest city if, that they captured if they captured it. Okay. So wow. it's it's so on a their, city that size, 23 days without water, that had to be devastating for people. That, that from the people that we have that are still there, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's really hard. Um, the most terrifying fact was my wife's parents were there. Okay. Um, and like I'd mentioned earlier, they were with us from November through January, uh, and we flew them back to Ukraine. They have a summer house. They wanted to go home and start getting ready. They love to go to the summer house and plant their gardens and um, grow the crop they're growing, um, spend time with their friends. Uh, so when the war started, the issue, the big issue for them is they're in their 70s. They live on the 11th floor of a 12-story apartment. And when the bombing starts, sometimes the power goes off, the elevators don't work. Mm -hmm. uh, they yeah. can't get up and down the stairs, so they would sit in the apartment literally just praying that nothing hit the apartment. Um, and, of course, this terrified me and my wife. Uh, we weren't sleeping well. Uh, and so we finally talked them into leaving, which was a journey in of itself, getting them out of I'm the country sure of Ukraine. Was. How in the yeah. world did you ever get them out of there? Yeah, let's, let's yeah. talk about that a bit. You know, the funny part is... So my wife and I called and sent them some letters, um, talked to them, uh, begged them to leave, and they and, just. And now this was right after the war started, or just is it has it been recent, or? This was in the beginning of March. Okay. Um, we we started really pushing <clears throat> to get them out. They were going night after night through these bombings. Um, again, you know, you'd call them and they were crying because they had just gone to the center of their apartment, and just hoped that nothing happened. Um, Man, so I can't imagine. You know? Yeah, it, it it was really stressful. And so when they finally agreed to leave, um, I went online and bought some plane tickets. Well, bought one plane ticket for me to fly to Romania. Um, I called my mother, who was traveling that day, to tell my parents that I was leaving. <laughs> Funny story, I, I couldn't get a hold of her, so I just sent her a text message and said, hey, I'm going to get Tatiana's parents. And um, my mom interpreted that as I was going to go volunteer as a Marine to go fight in Ukraine. Oh <laughs> and so... <laughs> She came over to my house pretty distraught, and I told her, I said, Mom, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s now. Yeah. Uh, my fighting days are over. Uh, I'm just going to Romania. So we had worked with people that got my wife's parents on a van. Mm -hmm. um, they were allowed one backpack each, and so they had to leave everything they've ever had in Ukraine, which has been really tough on them. Uh, they've, oh, yeah. they've been in that house for over 30 years. My wife grew up there. Her brother grew up there. Mm -hmm. um, all their memories are there. And they have no idea if they're going to go back and it's still there. Right. Uh, somebody looted it. So they loaded up their important documents and a, a few changes of clothes. And they got on a bus. And I think it was a six or seven hour bus ride to Moldova. Mm -hmm. And then once in Moldova, they got down to Romania where I met them. 
and then we uh, did our COVID test and flew back to the States. Okay. Are they so staying with you now? Or? They're, they're staying with us now. I have two refugees in the house. Um, it's uh, They had six months to be here. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the government modified the temporary protection status for Ukraine, and so I have applied for that. Um, we're still waiting on a response from immigration or whoever deals mm-hmm. with that. Um, and if that gets approved, then they'll be able to stay for 18 months. Okay. Um, if you have a TPS, you can work. I always laugh with my father-in-law that I'm going to put him at Walmart as a greeter. Um, <laughs> but I, I think they'll be fine in the house. Um, yeah. We found a store that's not far from us that sells U- Ukrainian Russian food. and so oh, that's cool. Yeah, we yeah. take them and buy the stuff they're used to, their comfort foods. Yeah. Uh, my wife's mom is a wonderful helper around the house. With She's always cooking, you know, borscht or... Uh, Vereniki or some kind of Ukrainian food because uh-huh. um, my wife works full time as a hairstylist and me doing computer work I'm pretty much busy all the time so it's interesting to have them in the house but it's a, it's, it's a blessing to have them safe right now is there still a pretty big language barrier for me yes I know about 25 Russian words um, <laughs> so a lot of people in Ukraine speak Ukrainian now but of course my wife and parents her parents speak Russian mm-hmm. um, I've learned some of the words over the years. It's an interesting language. It's a different alphabet. It's not on the acrylic base like right. ours. It seems very guttural to me. It, you know. it, it is. Um, I can say hello. Uh, I probably can curse you out in Russian if I'm upset with you. Cool. Um, we'll it, have to get together on that after the camera stops. Well, it's like me in Spanish. You know, I can get fed. I can find the bathroom. I can get my face slapped, and that's pretty much it. You know? Yeah, I um, I, I've I've learned just enough to learn if they're talking about me in the house. Okay. If I hear certain sentences, and then I sure. perk my ear up, I say, okay, they're talking about me again. Um, I laugh with the guys at work because every once in a while I work from home, and it sounds like a KGB convention in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what's funny is, you know, so my daughter that i've adopted speaks russian too mm-hmm. um you wouldn't know by speaking with her because she speaks perfect english no accent whatsoever um, oh you need her around then yeah, yeah. so um <laughs> it when she lived with us it was interesting i would come home and her and her mom would be talking in the kitchen and i would think they're arguing about something but they're just talking about their day saying they mm-hmm. love each other but russian sounds so aggressive sometimes yeah. it does um, <clears throat> it really so does. have you ever thought about uh, maybe suggesting to her to use her translation skills course you'd have to join the military to do that probably yeah I, I don't know i know one time at work uh one of the companies that the law firm she worked with was a russian company and she sat in a meeting to try to help them translate um it's a lot of work to translate it, it's hard to flip between the languages I, who am i to speak I, I barely speak english most of the time yeah, same um, same here with hank <laughs> yeah know, we have to deal with it yeah, so I, i'm try. i'm highly impressed at the way it, it's funny sometimes we'll be at the table and they'll be translating for me and then translating back for their parents mm-hmm. and so my wife will her parents will say something and she'll look at me and say it in russian and i'm just start laughing i'm like that doesn't help me i need the <laughs> other one um, right so when that happened um, one of the big concerns that we had with the war starting was how to help people. Um, and of course, everybody that knew us personally knew my wife was Ukrainian. We got a lot of those questions, you know, how, how do you help people? And quite honestly, when the war first started, I, I couldn't find a viable way because my concern for my time in politics is when you're asking people to donate money, um, you need to make sure that you know what's going to happen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people. Right, there's got to be some transparency and accountability. And, yeah. There's a lot of people that will set up donations and request and take money from people and use it for 
what it wasn't supposed to be used for. They'll right. keep it for themselves. Whatever the hot topic is, give, give, give. Oh, my God, save these babies. And you don't know what happens to that money. Yeah, we see this a lot in the cybersecurity world where people will send phishing right. emails and attack based on what are considered hot-button issues mm-hmm. um, to get people to respond and collect money that way. Right. Um, so my wife and I, originally, we had donated to a Ukrainian bank that was helping support the war. Um, what we decided to do was to set up a GoFundMe to help raise money to help her family and friends that are in Ukraine. Uh, and it took some time to go fund me. I, I really like what they did. They spent about a week or two asking me detailed questions about what I was going to do with the money to make sure that I was going to do something legitimate with it. Um, mm-hmm. I had to show who I knew in Ukraine. Um, so I was impressed with GoFundMe for doing that. But we set that up. Um, we've raised just under $10,000 so far. Uh, we've assisted, I believe it's about six families to get out of the country. Um, there was a gentleman that was a friend of ours that was in line in an ATM and a artillery round went off and he got hit by shrapnel, um, mm. punctured a lung, paralyzed him. And so we assisted with paying for his surgery. Uh, and then what we're doing now is we're trying to slowly raise some more money because the issue a lot of the Ukrainian people are having is they can't go to work. Uh, there's no way for them to make new money. Goods and services are getting more expensive because of the war. And so we're trying to find out who just needs I need food, I need water, I need some clothes for my kids, I need basic things to survive. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to collect that money so we can give it directly to people that we know that's going to make an actual difference in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had some people in Ukraine, they're, they're trying to raise money for a drone around Mykolaiv to give to the army to help them um, site the artillery. And I have that, I've sent that out to some people. A lot of people don't like donating to military things, mm-hmm. they want to do more humanitarian, so I try to segregate those two things. Um, but that's the big thing we're doing now, uh, trying to help these people. Now that we're four months into this uh, conflict over there, do you find it a little harder to uh, get these people help, much less get them out of there? Getting out of there, well, that's really up to them. So, you know, it's interesting. We have some friends that refuse to leave. It's yeah. their home. It's their well, country. I can, un- I can understand, I can understand that. that too. Yeah. You know, this is my ground and you're not taking it and I'll, I'll die defending it. Well, the men can't leave because of martial law. Nobody under the age of, I, I could be wrong, I think it's 65, can leave the country. Um, but we have some friends that, you know, because the husband can't leave, the wife won't leave. Right. Um, we have one group of friends where the husband couldn't leave, the wife wouldn't leave, but she has an older father who has heart conditions and a 17 year old daughter so she sent them to germany um, to live in germany actually it's a horror story because her sister was in germany and her sister was married to a russian and so the daughter and the dad get there and the russian husband starts arguments about the war about how ukrainians are bad and russians are so great and kicks them all out um so you know it's all around a bad situation for the ukrainian people getting help to them is not difficult it's just a swift bank transfer um, if you do a Western Union in Ukraine, you pay no fees right now. They can go to the Western Union and pick it up. But the bank transfers are the easiest ones because their their debit cards work everywhere. And so they can pull the money out as needed. Yeah. And so are there places still in Ukraine that are just unaffected by the war? I mean, Ukraine's a pretty big country. It's about as big as Texas, isn't it? It, it is just about the size of Texas in square miles. Um, I would say I have not heard of a place that's not affected by the war. Um, there might be some of the smaller cities in the western part of the country that haven't mm-hmm. actually been bombed, uh, like Lviv's in the western part of the country. And mm-hmm. it's taken some hits. It's taken some hits, but I would say even the places in the west that haven't been bombed 
have been dealing with the refugees sure. and that crisis, and so that's that's made a big difference. The Russians have blockaded the Black Sea, so Ukraine can't get any of their grain out. We're reading stories now about the Russians stealing the grain and selling it to Syria and Turkey. Um, so what I read last was Ukraine has lost about 90% of their GDP. Um, the money is just not coming in. Uh, and, and that's economically going to hurt this country that was already hurting to begin with. And mm -hmm. so right. I always say Americans are pretty generous. And I know right now it's difficult because we have a lot of problems here with gas and inflation mm -hmm. and some of the other things going on. Um, but some people have money to give. And if they want to give and they want to help somebody, what better cause is there to help somebody that's being attacked by right. na naked aggression? We've all got it a little tougher here. But, man, we don't have bombs blowing up and we're not hiding for our lives. And we've got electricity. Yeah. You know. Um, if you can spare a little bit, people, please help. So there's been some debate um, about what Putin's plan is. And I'd like to hear from, from you just to get an idea of what you think. You know, because some people say that, you know, he's doing this because it's, it's his attack on the West, actually. Yeah. You know, and then there's some that just say he wants to rebuild the old USSR. So what, what are you thinking? You know, I, and I mean, you should have some firsthand knowledge, being that, you know, you've got some Ukrainians living with you, that you pulled out of that situation, and also your wife, of course. So. Yeah, it, and it's interesting because before this war, a lot of the Ukrainians weren't really anti-Putin. Um, right. They just saw him as a good pro-Russian leader, and they viewed themselves as brothers and sisters to Russia. Mm -hmm. They were all one. Now there are people in Ukraine that were making those breaks, um, and historically. There's a lot of difference between Ukraine and Russia. Mm -hmm. um, Ukraine's been between Poland and Russia for years, if, if you trace it back to the 1100s. Um, it's interesting that Putin would say that there is no Ukraine without Russia, because Ukraine was a territory way before Russia was. Right. Um, right. Kiev was a city, a major city, mm -hmm. uh, way before Moscow was even mentioned in a storybook. Um, I find it fascinating that a lot of people will claim that Putin's crazy. Uh, they like to talk about how he's sick. Mm -hmm. I'm not a medical doctor. Um, crazy, I've seen crazy. Putin is very methodical. The one thing I don't believe that man to be is crazy. Um, he mentioned very clearly in documents that he's written about how his belief to restore the glory of the Soviet Union. Okay. And I think that's exactly what he's doing. So right. if you, and if you and people like him are thinking long term, this has been going on for decades. And you have to look at the totality of it, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened in 2014? because Russia really invaded Ukraine in 2014. Now they sent right. what they called the little green men without uh, insignias on their uniforms, but they took over Crimea mm -hmm. and they started an insurgency in the Donbass region. Right. Um, so why? If you look historically, Ukraine had a pro-Russian leader. Um, in 2012, they found oil off the coastline of Crimea, oil and natural gas. And actually it would have made Ukraine the 11th largest petro state in the world. Ukraine didn't have the infrastructure or ability to get to the gas or oil. Um, in 2014, they had the revolution, the maiden revolution. Um, they protested, 100 people were killed. The pro-Russian leader left and went back to Russia and they started a pro-Ukrainian democracy. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing the new Ukrainian government was signed a contract with Shell and Exxon to drill that oil. Mm -hmm. A few months after that happened, Russia invaded Crimea because Putin wants to control that oil. If Ukraine got a hold of that oil and could actually financially set themselves up, Ukraine could supply the natural gas to Europe and they wouldn't have to be blackmailed by Russia to buy right. it anymore. Mm -hmm. That was the first step in his problem. And then the next step's NATO, which I find fascinating that Putin didn't see the larger writing on the wall with this. 
Putin claimed he didn't want Ukraine to be part of NATO because that's an open door. If you study military from a geographical point of view, Ukraine is an important country because you have the Eastern European steppe, which is a wide open plain that opens into Russia. Um, when the Soviet Union had the block, they had it all the way to Germany. Mm -hmm. Really, to do a massive attack without going over mountains, you would have had to start in little focal points in Germany, and then you'd be able to spread out. Um, what's fascinating is he started this war, and I really think he was misled into believing that he could win in 15 to 20 days. I think that was the original plan. They're going to go in there and just blow the Good place up. Good luck to that. that yeah. That's what I think. And now it's interesting because you see, uh, what is it, Finland and, and Sweden mm -hmm. trying to join NATO, which would give a 1,300-mile NATO border right on Russia. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's fascinating. But I don't think Putin's crazy. I think he's methodical. I think he had a plan. I think his plan has backfired. And, and now I think we're seeing pride. He knows that he has more military equipment. And he knows that if he keeps threatening nukes, the West will stay out of the war personally. We might send weapons and equipment, but we're not right. ever going to send troops. Um, and, and from listening to the Russians on their TV shows, I watch them from time to time, they sound crazy enough to actually just it's part of their military doctrine was to nuke European cities to beat NATO. Mm -hmm. uh, they thought yeah. they could launch 13 nukes. And they the throw war. that word Nazi around like it, like it's nothing. Everybody that doesn't agree with them is a Nazi. So, a lot so of you the, think that actually did. It's not an empty threat. I think Putin would do it. Now, the issue is if you study Russian government, it, Putin can't launch the nukes on his own. It actually takes five people to approve it. Mm -hmm. and so if he gave that order, it would be interesting. What you would see is if any one of these five people disagreed with him, they have a choice to make. They can either be killed, they can launch the nukes, which they probably are disagreeing because they know they're going to be a retaliatory attack, which would kill their family and all their loved ones, or they can rally whatever support they have and try to start a coup to overthrow Putin. So I think Putin knows that, and he's in this quagmire where he might want to do it, but can he actually do it? Will all the people go along with him? Um, it's it's an interesting facet looking yeah but if you lob one they all go off that, that's that's i mean i don't think there's the possibility of a limited exchange anymore I, I i agree with that i think if russia nuked ukraine I, of course i'm not in the government i don't have mm -hmm. the president's ear but i don't know that we would respond <clears throat> to that with a nuclear response um It'd be bad news for Ukraine, but I, I just I believe that to be the truth. But what do I know? You never know what mm -hmm. the government's going to do or what somebody will decide. Man, I, if they did, that would be just uh, it'd be awful. I think it would, yeah, it would it would just send panic through this country. You know, there there should a lot be, of bad stuff would happen here. There should be know? panic because we've seen wars in the past. Um, they've been small territorial wars. You know, the U.S. and Afghanistan. There was a point for that. Mm -hmm. Iraq. You know, I did two tours there. I still don't fully understand that war. Um, people disagree with me. It's neither here nor there. It's over. Mm -hmm. um, but you look at, at the Soviet Union or Russia, you know, they invaded Georgia um, because Georgia was talking about joining NATO. Right. Um, they had the Chechen wars in 99. Mm -hmm. um, they went into Ukraine in 2014. And it reminds me a lot of historically when you study dictators like Putin. Mm -hmm. or, or uh, Hitler. People slowly see what they can get away with yeah. until somebody responds. With They're gauging the weakness of uh, the opposition. That's that's exactly right. That, that's kind of what we're seeing now is Putin had calculated that nobody was going to do anything to defend Ukraine. Um, and, and in essence, we're not. And I would even argue that some of the stuff we're doing is 
kind of unconstitutional in a sense, um, the way our government throws money around to other mm-hmm. countries. Um, you know, tax money should be guarded a little better than that. Uh, but Yeah, that's been going on for generations. Well, one of my arguments is if the government didn't tax us so much, people would have more money to give to whatever charity or, or they, whatever they right. wanted to give to. Um, but that that's for a different debate at a different time because that's a hard subject to change. I heard somebody the other day say, well, if they can just print money out of thin air, what the hell they needed taxes for? Mm. I yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. They could just make us just send make them a your ream own of money. paper. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Here's here's my ream of paper. Yeah. Yeah, well if you look at the the US with the debt to GDP ratio, um, I believe last year it was around 129%. Uh, historically there's no country that reaches those levels that comes out the same on the right. other side. Right. They can't. They talk about uh, a house of cards, man. You talk about the Roman Empire, the same thing. They debased their currency. Inflation set in. It was the beginning of the end. You could talk about Spain in the 1600s. You could talk about France in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. You're talking about nations that started inflation. And when you have that massive inflation with debt-to-GDP ratio, it stops your ability to grow your economy. Uh, you don't get to put as much spending into infrastructure, education, the things that are important to make an economy grow or a nation grow. And so that's a concern that a lot of Americans should think about. Um, you know, what's going to happen when our government reaches that point? Um, what if we collapse like the Soviet Union did in 89? Um, what happens to Social Security? What happens to Medicare? What happens to all these services that we depend on? Um, but You know, and the larger problem is there's a growing part of the population that absolutely does not care they don't care they, they don't, let it they don't understand you know? because they don't teach economics anymore right they they don't teach financial yeah. responsibility right and i and i think we've been so far removed from the horrors of war on our own soil and so far removed from real poverty like third world poverty mm-hmm that yeah people don't think it's possible here you know in my travels uh that's one of the interesting things is when you go overseas um you see people that literally wonder where they're going to get drinkable water for the Mm -hmm. day um i saw that in mexico back in the 90s i used to go to cozumel nice resort beautiful beaches plenty of waiting on you to bring you a pineapple full of pina colada but I, I like to get off off the beaten path when I go to places like that. And, man, you get off in these neighborhoods and down these back streets, and there's people living in a pile of rocks mm-hmm. and cinder blocks. And sewage running down the street. And they, they're collecting rainwater so they can take a damn bath. That's man. illegal here. Don't do that. Yeah. That's, I heard that, too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, I, I've seen that in my travels. it depends on the state. I think in some states you can collect rainwater. Oh, it might be. Yeah. Um, I've seen that in my travels to Africa. Um, you see that in part of Eastern Europe. Uh, you see it in Asia, for sure. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even in Australia, as nice as it was there, there are sections that have, we have poor areas in the states that people wonder where basic life services are going to come from each day. Um, we, we take a lot of things for granted because for so long, I was talking to my daughter about um, interest rates for homes. Um, and I was talking to people at work about it and how I think the interest rates are going to go up. And you might actually see home interest rates over 10%. And everybody thought I was crazy. And I'm like, look, in the 1980s, you could get a home at 16 17% interest. Right. And, and people that, were signing the line for that, it, too. That's all you could get. Um, and so that's because we had massive inflation and the interest rates went up. And so it's it, just because we've been such a long period of time now with these great interest rates, it's not fair to assume that that's going to last forever. That's not the norm. Yeah. Right. 
So back to Ukraine and, and Russia. So how do you think the, the uh, this thing ends up turning out? I mean, do you think that Russia will get to a point to where they'll just decide to retreat? Or do you think Ukraine might get to the point where they're like, okay, take this chunk of land and let's end right. this? I know? mean, there's so many possible scenarios there. It, I wonder how it'll actually pan out. Yeah, and I, I can... And, t- if it, and if it'll be their 20-year war, you know? I can tell you there's honestly no possible way, but I would love to speculate with you for a little bit. Okay. Um, so, like any conflict, it's about loss. Um, at what point are your losses greater than you can withstand? And so from Ukraine, what you're talking about is you have a people that are willing to resist. Um, the people I met in Ukraine are fiery passionate about well, their country. Yeah. Seen um, that already. Yeah, yeah it's it is obvious. amazing. When this war started, I actually told my wife the first night that Ukraine would be done in a week. Um, but I had bought I into this. I think that this, was everybody's thought. Yeah. I had bought into this idea of this massive Russian military, um, which we've all seen now as a paper tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, it is amazing what the drones and, and the javelins and stingers are doing to their equipment. Um, so what we have to look from Ukraine's point of, point of view, they're losing so much money through economic trade and just production, the billions of dollars of infrastructure damage they've had. Will they reach a point to where they say, okay, we cannot withstand any more of this. Let's give Russia some of our territory and try to sue for peace. The first issue Zelensky is going to have with that is in the Constitution, they can't give away territory without a referendum. They have to hold a vote. It's really hard to hold a vote in a war zone. Which, right. Which would mean that Russia would have to pull their troops out and stop and allow Ukraine to vote, which would never happen. Um, so that's the first obstacle. Now, I wonder if, because martial law in the time of war, if the Ukrainian parliament and Zelensky could just say, you know what, okay, we're going to give them x y and z territory we're going to draw up some lines and end this war i think for that to happen western countries would have to provide assurances to ukraine that we would actually send troops to defend them if russia invaded again and and this is the interesting part because in the 90s basically nato but would but would putin even accept a partial or does he just want it all i don't know that he has the material and resources to get it all but yeah and hold it right what I want to mention is in the 90s, when the Soviet Union fell apart, Ukraine became the third largest holder of nuclear weapons. Right. They signed a treaty with three countries guaranteeing their safety. 1994. If they, if they surrendered their nuclear weapons. Those were the United States, Great Britain, and Russia. Mm-hmm. And those countries were supposed to protect Ukraine if they were ever invaded. Um, the treaty turned out to be a paper tiger because it didn't say that the countries had to support militarily with troops. It just said that they had to plead to the UN, which now we've seen the flaw in the UN is you have these five key members and one of them can start a war and do whatever they want and there's no consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you ever pass a UN resolution to punish Russia if Russia can veto every resolution? Exactly. And besides that, it's just a big debating society. It, they solved nothing. I mean, they were they were founded on 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 good moral grounds, but look at the people that are in there on the board, like you're saying. Yeah, the UN needs to have a way to where the majority, say, seventy percent of the members, could vote to remove a Security Council member from that council. Mm-hmm. Um, there needs to be a backdoor for that. Now, going back to the war, you're talking about from Russia's point of view. Again, I really believe Putin thought, and they found documents that. Russian soldiers had left behind the 15-day battle plan to capture Ukraine. Yeah. Hmm. The problem is, I believe that the Russians thought the Ukrainians would welcome them, 
And if they did, it would have been fine. But with a resistance like this, you're talking two, three million troops to hold that country. Imagine trying to hold Texas while you have oh, yeah, people shooting at you. Now, the advantage. But then again, we're armed to the hilt. Well, anyway. that's the advantage. So the Ukrainians weren't armed like we are. Mm-hmm. Um, they had territorial defenses where they could go get guns. But like the city of Kherson that fell so fast, mm-hmm. they weren't able to pass those weapons out. So the people in Kherson you'll see on social media protest every day, but they don't have weapons to try to fight back. You're not seeing the, you know, a group of soldiers walking down the street and somebody shoots one of them from a house. Um, Isn't it a shame we couldn't have given all the weapons and equipment from uh, Afghanistan to the Ukrainians? I mean, I mean yeah. as long as we're giving it away anyway, right? Yeah, that, that would have been a lot of stuff that we left <laughs> 85 <Afghanistan>. billion. <laughs> But I think what you're going to see you're from... still bitter about that. I'm still <laughs> bitter about that. I, th- I think what you're going to see from the Russians now, if they get their way, what they're attempting to do is fully control the Donbass. Um, I might butcher these names, but that's Luhansk and Detonsk. Um, okay. The last city of Luhansk, they're fighting for that... S- s- uh, starts with an S. Um, they, they need 10% more of that territory to control all of it. And they control another forty percent to control the entire Dumbass. I think what you'll find is if they can reach those milestones, they might try to sue for peace and keep that territory. I think I know the city you're talking about. Severodesk. Severodesk. It's got nine syllables, and there's ten thousand people trapped there. There are a lot civilians. I'm talking about. There are a lot of people, but the Ukrainians really set the Russians up for that. So if you study it from a military point of view, there's a river between two cities. And the city on the Ukrainian side of the river is 700 feet higher. So they have artillery on those ridge lines. And there's an advantage when you're firing artillery to be able to fire and actually see where your rounds are blowing up. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so they are on that mountain firing down into the town the Russians are trying to take. And that's why the Russians are really having a hard time with that city. And the Ukrainians are putting up a good fight. I don't believe they want to hold the city. I think their military tactic, which is genius, is to destroy as much Russian equipment as possible. Yeah, well, you've got some kind of advantage. If they can attrition the war. And so there's so much propaganda going on from both sides, it's hard to tell. But if you look at the Ukrainian numbers, uh, I think as of this morning, they claim to have killed 1,410 tanks. Uh, That's like 43% of the entire Russian tank force. That number starts getting close to 50. It's going to be hard for Russia to maintain a war when they've lost half their tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you mentioned Nazis earlier. I wanted to come back to this. Um, so in America, we throw that term around a lot. Mm-hmm. It's more of a <clears throat> political, well, you're a Nazi. Um, it's there, become that, yeah, and that's a damn shame. There are actual Nazis in America. There are actual Nazis in Russia. There are actual Nazis in Ukraine. There are Nazis everywhere. Um, the Ukrainian party that is considered the Nazi party got less than 2% of the vote in the last national election. But the reason why you see this so powerful in Russia, because Nazis are, that is the biggest insult in the world. If you ever visit Russia to talk about Nazis, they celebrate their May, May 9th day, the great, um, right. The great patriotic war against the Nazis. World war II, yeah, yeah. So victory day, isn't it? Yeah. yeah they, yeah. they call it the great patriotic war where they flash all their military equipment across the parade grounds. Um, and that's a big celebration for them, but they still, that's the biggest thing is they defeated the Nazis and the Nazis are the bad people. And that's some of what you hear Putin in his first speech when he talked about the war was they're going to denazify and they have to attack Ukraine because Ukraine was getting ready to attack them and they weren't going to allow that to happen the same way it happened in 1942. But interesting enough, when I went to Russia, what I learned, 
uh, well, in Ukraine too, their history is a little skewed. It's, it's interesting meeting people that didn't learn history for the way it is. Mm-hmm. They don't know that World War II started in 1939. Um, and Russia and Nazi Germany were allies. That, that's right. They have no idea. They don't know that Russian troops went into Poland. They don't know. Most of them don't know about the Winter War with uh, Finland. Finland. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe World War II started with Operation Barbarossa mm-hmm. when the Invasion. Nazis invaded. Right. Um, I saw that movie. Yeah, Barbarossa. No, 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 Barbarella. Sorry, I saw that movie too. <laughs> it's the only movie I like Jane Fonda in. <laughs> Jane Fonda was in that movie. She was Barbarella. Oh, okay. Well, when I saw it, I was intoxicated. You always take this <laughs> on a downward slope. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I'm sorry, Craig. Please. Continue. No, no. I mean, yeah, I I enjoy the fun banter. So. Personally, I'd like to believe that you'll see an end to this war sometime between October and January. And the reason why you'll see that is Russia will run out of equipment. And when, when that winter sets in, that's going to be a game changer. But I don't know, you know, because Russia likes having us on the ropes, too. And they got us on the ropes right now. They, they have know? us in a bad spot. Um, and, and I wonder if it seems to me like he'd be willing to go to the ends of the earth just to maintain that. You know, it. It's possible, but economically, at some point, these sanctions will start to hurt. Yeah, I hope um, so. Yeah. You're I've not, heard a lot of different things on the sanctions, like they're they're just kind of not really hurting them. Maybe they will later, or they're not targeting the right banks, and you know, people are mm-hmm. kind of. There's, they've already had workarounds, and they're still able. Yeah, to, here's, here's so, able to function. Yeah, here's such. the problem with the sanctions is. About I think it's nine hundred billion or nine hundred million euros a day in Russian energy, gas, and oil is bought by Europe. Right. Um, so that money is really helping them. Um, but the, a lot of people in Russia are getting their time cut or their pay cut, and a lot of people will start to lose their jobs, and they're not getting the imports of things that are needed for technology. They they can't make new airplanes, drones. Um, they've shut down their whole fleet. Well, I figured China mm-hmm. would be helping out on that. Yeah, as far as I know, I haven't seen anything about that. Uh, but it makes you wonder, what's China's game on this? Because right, and they've got one. I think oh, kicking back watching. China right has now. a game. Do they want some of Russia's right. territory? Uh, there's a lot of territory in the east well, of Russia. They've had that, their eye on Taiwan forever. Taiwan would start a bigger problem for them. But mm-hmm. if they took some of the gas fields in Siberia, who would care other than Russia at this point? Yeah, Chinese, Chinese, uh, the government is is sneaky enough to. To ponder these scenarios. Sure. So. Such a delicate balance with everything. And that's what worries me. You the, know. The world is every day. The only time it's not delicate is uh, when I'm eating breakfast. Uh, that's straight to the point. Yeah. Eat breakfast. That's it. That's it. Well, I don't know how it's all going to turn out. Nobody does. Nobody does. But uh, I don't know. It, it seems like we just keep getting lucky as far as america goes we just keep getting lucky and nothing ever happens here on this soil sooner or later you know it's coming this way you know it i've looked at this a lot it would be very difficult for another country to invade because of the oceans between us as long as our navy is so strong Um, that and the fact that we're armed to the hilt individually as long as we maintain that second amendment it would be difficult for another country to come in and control this population. And right. that's what Russia's seeing with Ukraine is it's going to be difficult to control that country. And I think that's why if you see a peace treaty, you might see Putin surrender to just getting certain territory because he realizes 
they're not ready for the whole thing yet. They, right. they just don't have the means to take it. <clears throat> wow. So how do people help? Oh, oh yeah, I didn't mention. Yeah, let's get back to that. So I started a Facebook. If you're on Facebook, it's a Mikalive Support Fund. Um, but I started a GoFundMe, which can be found at Mikalive UK. And, and that city is spelled M-Y-K-O-L-A-I-V-U-K. And so we'll, we'll be sure and put links in the description. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'd appreciate it. Um, and I try to update the Facebook page um, at least once a week with anything I'm finding out from the people that are there. Uh, we still have a few friends that are in the city. Uh, okay. Like I said, they refuse to leave. And I, I'm with you. I don't blame them. I don't know that I would leave. Um, other people have left, but they still have ties to the city. Um, we have friends that work for the mayor's office there. And so we have helped them get, you know, medical supplies, um, hygiene equipment, stuff in through financial means to the yeah. city to help people out. Um, the goal is, if this war ends and Mykolaiv is still part of Ukraine, what I'd like to do is see if I can raise some money and go back and maybe rebuild a school for them, um, help them with some infrastructure need that they might need instantly um, with the contacts that I have in the city to help those people start a normal life again. Okay. Um, I, I can't imagine living in an area i mean just if somebody invaded us and one of our cities was partially destroyed uh americans generally have good hearts as long as it's a valid cause it's it's noble yeah. um i think I, we're the most generous country in the world i would agree with that 100 percent um and it's been that way for a long time and i can tell you from my experiences in ukraine meeting the people um these people deserve our help if you have the ability to help them um, and if you don't want to donate to us, there are a lot of different organizations that are asking for help. Um, if you want to help with something other than humanitarian, uh, I have people that are trying to raise money for generators to get to the troops so they can have some power on the front lines. They're trying to raise money for drones. These drones are $1,200 each. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not a lot of money, but you put a $1,200 drone up that can GPS track a tank so they can artillery shoot it. Uh, these things make a difference in the war for them. Sure. Again, like I said, some people don't want to help with the military. They want to help the people. So we mm -hmm. have this option through the GoFundMe also. Okay. And you're using this money for, for medical, for food, for water, for not so much for getting people out anymore? Yeah. Most of them are staying? That, that's right. Uh, everybody that wanted to get out, we assisted them with getting out. Um, okay. A couple families went to Italy. Uh, one family went to Hungary, and they are now in Israel. Uh, people went to Poland, people went to Germany, um, but the people that are, some people left Mykolaiv, they're still in Ukraine, um, and the reason why is they didn't want to leave their husband, they just wanted to be off the front lines, um, but we're sending the money directly to the people that we personally know, Okay. Uh, and it's for them to buy, hey, I need some food, or the, one of the families that went to Italy, uh, after they were there for a few weeks, neither one of them can get a job, they have two small children. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad they left because they were spending nights in uh, basements and their kids were having nightmares and crying. And so that's what we were telling them is you just got to get out of the country. The husband was able to leave because he's partially blind in one eye. So they medically allowed him to leave. Okay. They went to Italy. Um, they had contacted us that, you know, they just needed a little bit for some clothes for their kids. Uh, and so we sent them some money to buy some food. Uh, and, th and that's the big problem people have is they, even if you're a refugee and you go to another country, if you can't get a job, it's hard to survive. Um, sure. Just everyday living. These aren't people that are taking vacations. Um, they're not going to the movies. They're not out drinking at the bars. Right. They're, they're trying to find daily necessities that have lived their lives. Yeah. Okay. It's a noble thing that you're doing. I like it. I love my wife. So. Um, I, 
I'm a lot harder than some people through my combat experiences. Um, mm -hmm. My threshold for what I can deal with is a lot from the things that I've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. But my wife had a hard time with it, and she's still having a hard time with this war. And I don't blame her. Her home country is being attacked. Right. And that need to help, that desire to help, that's something a lot of people feel. Um, but how do you do it? And so that's, that's why I use my IT knowledge to set this up. I made sure to set up a separate bank account so it's completely separate from any money I touch. Um, it's sit there, and then I can do wire transfers from that Chase account straight to these people in Ukraine. Okay. Yeah, it's a great thing. So, um, yeah, we'll put links um, to that in case anybody wants to donate okay. and such and so forth. And I guess on your Facebook page, you pretty much update on a regular basis what's going on. And Not on my personal one, but on this group page I made for the city, okay. I try to do a weekly update. Okay. Um, sometimes I don't because there's, I get tired of saying they're getting bombed. Um, yeah. That's really the update. Um, the last one I had is the mayor did an interview and the death toll for the city reached 300 the other day, um, mostly civilians. And so I, I made a post about that. Um, but it, it's hard to get information out, too, because the Ukrainians are kind of tight about the information you can get because they don't want it being used against them. Yeah, and um, that makes sense, too. Right. Yeah, I can understand that. <clears throat> well, Mark, you got anything else? No. Um, I think Craig covered it really well. I want to thank you for what you're doing and thank you for your service. I appreciate it. it people say that a lot, and I always say I was at the wrong place at the right time. Yeah. Um, you know, I... It just happened to be in the Marines. Um, I, I would have gladly given my life for this country um, had that been asked of me. Uh, I don't know that I feel that same way with our current government, um, but the people of, of this country, there are a lot of good, honest, red-blooded Americans here. Yes, sir. That, that need people that understand the importance of the freedoms that we have. Uh, we need to find the ability to have civil discussions about our disagreements again. Exactly. Um, we need to find people to represent us in office that understand the Constitution and that the government's not the answer to our problems. Yeah, we say that all the time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so if we could find that, our freedoms are right there for the taking. We just have to fight for them. It doesn't have to be a fight with weapons. It can be a fight with the mind. It, sure. it takes time. It takes passion to make change in this world. And it's worth fighting for. Yes, brother. sir. I agree. There you go. All right, guys, there you have it. I told you this was going to be a good story, and it sure turned out that way. So if you got five bucks, you got ten bucks, you got a thousand bucks, send it this guy's way and, and let's get some help over there to the Ukrainian people. I can't imagine what they go through on a daily basis. And uh, I do hope it'll end sometime in October, November, maybe turn of the new year. Um, tomorrow would be better, <laughs> but I don't think that's going to go down. But uh, yeah, let's throw some money toward this GoFundMe thing. Let's see if we can help these guys out. It's important. And it's a worthy cause. It's a good thing for you to do. Um, you know, instead of going out to eat one night, cook at home and, and throw that 40, 50 bucks his way. All right, guys, look forward to seeing you all at the Hurricane Preparedness class on the 28th of June. And uh, Mark and I will be doing some additional videos about that and some other stuff here pretty soon. But thanks for watching. Thanks for being a part of this whole thing we call the show. And... Uh, for Mark Hogan, I'm Hank Vatt. This is Hank's Think Tank, and we're out.